protecting against ransomware, and a look at the U.S. Departments of Energy's National Cyber-Informed Engineering Strategy. These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hi, I'm Anna Delaney. What are some unique challenges for healthcare when battling or responding to ransomware? Well, this is a question our executive editor, Matthew Schwartz, posed to Peter McKenzie, Director of Incident Response at Sophos, in a recent interview about protecting healthcare against ransomware. Peter says that what he sees is not so much mistakes that are particular to healthcare, but rather common mistakes across the board. If you think about how a ransomware attack actually works. So when we speak to victims, we'll often ask them, when did this happen? When did this attack happen? And the answer we'll typically get is last night or, you know, this morning. The users have come in, they've tried to open up their documents, the icons have all changed and nothing's working. So the, you know, the IT service desk starts getting all these phone calls. And that's when they realize there's an incident. That's the typical um, thing that happens. But the reality is most ransomware attacks are human driven now against organizations. And that human or group of you know, attackers, they have to accomplish certain tasks to be able to achieve the level of sort of destruction and impact they want to do. So they need to get into the network. They need to get the domain admin accounts that uh, will allow them to do what they want to do across all machines. They want to find out where your backups are, and they probably want to delete them prior to the attack. Most groups now will also want to steal large amounts of data before they launch the ransomware. And then they'll actually plan out how they're going to deploy the ransomware to all of your servers, all of your machines, or whichever ones they choose. That's not something that happens instantly. That can take days or weeks of preparation. The average amount of time we've seen ransomware attackers in networks prior to ransomware deployment this year is around about 11 days. So that's what we expect an attacker to have been on the network for. So if you take that time into account, and the reality is that a lot of these attackers aren't actually that advanced. They watch a lot of YouTube videos. There's a lot of tools out there. There's a service for everything. So a lot of the stuff they do is sort of given to them with instructions. I'm not saying they don't know what they're doing, but a lot of them are following instructions and using pre-configured sort of tools. What that means is these attacks are relatively noisy. And by that, I mean mistakes. The attackers use tools and techniques that will get detected by your security solutions. And what we found in investigations for ransomware this year, over 80% of ransomware victims had what we class as warning signs prior to the ransomware deployment. So that is detections by your security solution, sending alerts to an administrator to someone in charge of security at that organization. So if you think about it, 80% or more had warning signs saying something is going on. The problem is security is so fast paced, so complicated that most organizations don't have simply the resources to even be looking at these alerts. When they are, they're flooded by alerts and they often don't necessarily have the experience to know which alerts are the most important and you know this one needs investigation this one maybe doesn't so they get missed and it allows the attacker to stay on the network and do what they're there to do which is obviously cause a large amount of impact and when it's healthcare obviously that adds the uh, the risk to life issue as well so 
yes, there are common mistakes, and yes, they uh, can impact healthcare more than anyone else, really. But it is an industry problem that security is too complicated, and you really shouldn't be trying to attempt it by yourself. You should be partnering with other trusted vendors and and services like uh, MDR services, managed detection and response services, that can help provide you that 24-7 coverage. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. To critical infrastructure now, the U.S. Department of Energy this year unveiled its National Cyber-Informed Engineering Strategy. The plan looks to incorporate more cyber resilience during the manufacturing, development, and deployment of computer systems used by energy providers. At ISMG's recent Critical Infrastructure Summit, Mara Wynn, Deputy Director, Preparedness, Policy, and Risk Analysis for the Office of CESAR, U.S. Department of Energy, shared an overview of what's to come. One of the things that we are trying to do in the Department of Energy is break it down into manageable chunks. Everything that can be coming at many uh, utilities, many suppliers right now can feel very overwhelming if you don't happen to have resident experts and trying to understand what the sensors are doing and how to make sure that you have proper information sharing can be very complex if it's not your daily bread and butter. So in June, we announced the release of DOE's National Cyber-Informed Engineering Strategy. We're aware of the need for energy systems to be built securely instead of tacking security on after deployment of the grid. So if you build it in early, it's going to be less expensive. It's going to be more in tune with the true needs because you've thoughtfully designed it in. And it's going to, in the end of the day, be more effective. And so we have five major pillars that we build on for this strategy. We have awareness, which is, you know, recommend raising awareness of the approach, this application, uh, making sure that decision makers in our energy sector industrial base, which is the owners and operators, but also the manufacturers, the researchers, other government leaders understand the importance of integration. We definitely find that awareness is not equivalent across all of the various partners. And sometimes you need to look at those that may have more complex challenges given the way that their entity is structured to be able to lift them up. And then we have education. Once you're aware, you have to educate. How do you embed into formal education, training, credentialing? We cannot effectively implement this without preparing the workforce. Um, as, as Manny was saying earlier, you need people who know how to operate, who know what to look for, who know how to understand the threats because they are very, very complex. And especially when you have a nation state concern, there's something that you really have sophistication in. And then development. We move on to development when we want to mature the approaches by building repository of tools, practices, methods, and other enrichment that practitioners can draw upon. We're looking at current infrastructure. We have a lot of uh, energy infrastructure in this nation right now, and we're not tearing it out and replacing it. So how do we make sure that the tools and technologies and solutions and collaborations are available for current infrastructure? But we also know things are changing. We have future infrastructure that is going to be implemented as we look for more resilience. It's something where you need to plan in the energy infrastructure needs and design needs now and talk about it as a sector, as a cohesive industrial body so we can plan appropriately. 
And finally, our business editor, Michael Novenson, writes that next-gen SIM vendor, Securonics, has snagged longtime Ivanti executive Nayaki Nayar as CEO to strengthen product capabilities and customer experience. I spoke with him about this new appointment. Excellent to see you, Michael. So you've written a piece this week about how Securonix has appointed a new CEO. I'd love your thoughts on this announcement. Of course. Thank you for having me, Anna. So Securonix, which is a next-gen SIM vendor, they announced earlier this week that Nayaki Nayar is going to be their new CEO. She's replacing Sacha Nayar, they're not related, who had been leading the company since 2010. So the news came as a little bit of a surprise because Sachin had been there since the very early days. The company had started two years earlier, but he had really helped them along the growth journey and growth path. But it seems like he's taking a step back. He had also, Sachin had also served as the CEO at Savian for a number of years. He had stepped back from that role in 2018. So looks like he might be scaling back his involvement. Uh, but Sikharanik did bring in someone from the outside, Nayaki Nayar. She had been most recently president at Avanti, which has some plays in security as well as some play some broader technology plays. What's interesting here is that uh, Securonix uh, received a large investment back in February, about a billion dollars from Vista Equity Partners, a private equity firm. I'm sure it played a role in choosing her, but if they were looking for a change in leadership at the top, since they are now a significant stakeholder in the company. So what does this move mean for Securonix? I mean, what capabilities do they hope to develop? That's an interesting question. The sim space is changing a lot. So if you go back 20 years, there were really three legacy SIM players. That was Curator, which was bought by IBM, Splunk, as well as Logrhythm. And those were kind of the old school traditional SIM, which was really about just creating a log of all of the alerts. It didn't help much with prioritizing triage response. So in the early 2010s, we had what were then called next-gen SIM, notably Exabeam and Securonix come along. And they were trying to make SIM more actionable. So rather than just getting this long list of like, here's all the problems you have, that it would help you figure out what was the most important and then ideally could also take care of some of the more basic issues on its own. So what you've had since then, and these companies were really on the cutting edge technologically, is you've now had Microsoft enter the space. They produced their own offering called Sentinel in 2019. They were highest rated vendor and Gartner just three years after debuting their offering, which is a hard thing to do. And then you're also having this convergence of SIM and XDR that a lot of the network and endpoint vendors are positioning XDRs to be a SIM replacement since it can ingest and make sense of data ideally at a lower cost than a SIM would be. So what you're having here is these some of these peer play SIM vendors are having to figure out how to reinvent themselves. Exabeam, I know, has pushed in and has started doing some more things with XDR branding and is trying to take advantage of that market interest in XDR. Securonics hadn't done that as much, but I think Naki Nayar is going to have to think about really how to position the company, both from a competitive standpoint against now that they're dealing with Microsoft, as well as how much they want to dip their toe into the XDR market. And, and then also how to messaging, how to make it clear, how is it it's, uh, XDR backed by SIM different than an XDR from a CrowdStrike or from a Palo Alto Networks, which really relies on that endpoint or that network telemetry. So I think some of this is branding and messaging, and then some of this is from a technological capability standpoint, deciding how much you want to get into the XDR space and take on Microsoft. Now, Nayaki is the company's first female CEO and one of only a handful in the vendor community. Do you think this move will spark other such appointments in the industry? I mean, I certainly hope so. It is a sad sign for the industry that with the hundreds and hundreds of major vendors that we have seven female CEOs of significantly sized vendors, say roughly 500 employees or more. I mean, I'm really hoping that changes. What's interesting is that 
it's very rare that a female a female leader is brought in from the outside to become CEO. If you look at most of the other cases of female CEOs, Veracode and and Beyond Trust and Help Systems and Dark Trace, that these were folks who were there internally and then got promoted from an opening. Really, the only other and then Trend Micro has uh, Ava Chen was part of the founding team and she moved into the CEO role. So the only time we've seen a female CEO brought in from the outside was in Perva a couple of years ago. They're owned by Pema Bravo, and they brought in Pam Murphy, also extremely experienced. She had been a CEO at Infor. So it's, I think it's really a question, especially for these companies who are privately owned. Of, and, the, and these private equity firms kind of have a list of executives who they're just looking to place as they acquire assets. And it's a question of how many women are on these lists. And unfortunately, it seems like historically it hasn't been many. I think it's also a question of kind of the go-to-market versus the technical side that in security most companies want somebody with a deep technical background as CEO. A lot of the female executives in the security industry are more on the sales and marketing side. There certainly are some folks who are on the technical side, but a lot of the CTOs, CPOs are male. So when it comes time to choose a CEO, you're drawing from that pool, which tends to be more male. I think the PE firms certainly need to consider trying to get some more qualified female candidates on their list, but I think it's also on the vendor community to try to get more females into C-suite roles on the technology and on the R&D side. So you have some credential female CEOs in waiting. Well, Michael, it's been really good to talk and thank you so much for your insight. You're very welcome. Thanks for the time, Anna. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time. Music